Hola mi gente, bienvenidos. I'm your host Lore and this is Creepy Chisme. Some stories and info are not suitable for all, especially young children. Listen at your own risk. Hola mi gente, it's your girl Lore here with another episode of Creepy Chisme. ¿Cómo están? Yo, I'm good. I'm fine. Feliz Día de Gracias. Happy Thanksgiving. Hope you guys are enjoying your families and friends this weekend. And if you choose not to celebrate, then I hope you have a great day. Anyway, I definitely look at this holiday as a day to appreciate life and family. But let's not forget all the awful things the indigenous ancestors went through in the past for us to have the life that we have today. So... It's unfortunate that new settlers were not open to learning and accepting. Life could have been way different than it is today. I also want to take the time to say, check on your friends and neighbors this holiday season. This is the time of the year where depression, especially seasonal depression, can get pretty bad for some people. So just remember those that may not have a family or a place to go, Take them a hot plate, do something nice. Mi gente, I want you to know that I am here for you if you ever need someone. Someone to talk to, someone to just be there. Send me a message, por favor. I love you guys and I am truly thankful for each and every one of you that are listening right now. And if you are feeling super low, please don't fret to call the National Suicide Hotline. Now, in the States, it's available 24 hours a day. That number is 988, and you can call, text, write to them. You can visit 988lifeline.org, but let's not get to that point, mi gente. Reach out to anyone, me included, because even if you don't feel like it, you matter. Yeah, these topics are hard to talk about, but around this time of year, suicide rates go up. So I just want to let you guys know that I love you guys, and I'm sending you a big hug through whatever you're listening on your phone, your iPad, your computer, whatever it is. All right, let's get right into an updater story I've recently heard. Oh, mi gente. Now, I have not even mentioned this bitch's name because you know those people that you treat like Lord Voldemort. (laughs) He who shall not be named. Well, this bitch is one of those people. I do have a few more in my life, including my ex and my brother's crazy ass ex-girlfriends. He really knows how to pick them. And they get crazier, too. I seriously can't wait for the next one. I told him I'm going to write a book about it, too, because y'all can't even imagine the shit I've seen. (laughs) Okay, okay. Sorry, Rick. (laughs) I love you, but next time, listen to me, okay? Anyway, where were we? Oh, yes. Okay, crazy bitches. Casey Anthony. Now, it's been 14 years since the mysterious death, not mysterious at all, of her young daughter, Kaylee Anthony. She has filmed a three-part documentary with Peacock. It's called Anthony where the truth lies. It begins streaming November 29th, and as much as I hate this human, you know my big ass is gonna be 
sitting on that couch with my popcorn and my wine, watching and judging this bitch. Now, this is her first on-camera interview ever. And in the trailer, spoiler, if you don't want to know, skip ahead like three, four minutes. But in the trailer, she says, quote, I lied. Duh, bitch, we know. But no one asked me why. End quote. I added the duh, bitch, we know. Because we know you lied. You got in trouble for lying. Now, if you live on another planet and you're not familiar with this case, long story short, in 2008, Casey Anthony was charged with the murder of her two-year-old daughter who mysteriously vanished and then later was found deceased in a wooded area near her home. It was determined that the young girl accidentally drowned in the family pool, which, okay, might be true. But the point is someone moved her. Somebody moved and tried to dispose of the body instead of calling police. So much shit came up in this case that pointed directly to the young girl's mother, Casey. Like how she was partying while her kid was missing or how they found evidence in her trunk. But anyway, she was shockingly acquitted of murder, but she was charged with providing false information because like I said, She lied left and right. So apparently she's going to explain herself and what she thinks actually happened. Rumor has it. She points the finger at her dad. I cannot wait to watch and find out what she has to say. So yeah, I'll definitely be watching. Maybe I'll even do a review. I don't know. I can't stand her. I cannot stand her. And honestly, like, it doesn't matter what she says. I probably still won't believe it. (laughs) Another quick update I have for you guys is that I read recently, and I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again because you know your girl loves some aliens. But did you know, or did I tell y'all, that NASA is now also studying UFOs? Mm Mm-hmm. So I think within the next five years, we will have our first big encounter of some sort. Now, I recently went and got tattooed by a guy named Daniel at Stateline Tattoo. So if y'all are near the Chicagoland area, Chicagoland South Suburbs, highly recommend this shop. The environment, the staff were amazing. Make an appointment with Daniel and tell him Lore from Creepy Cheese sent you. But anyway, so the reason I bring this up is because he and I bonded, not only because we spent almost two and a half hours together, but he mentioned conspiracies and boom, we talked everything, including how I think that the government is getting us ready for some huge alien invasion or encounter. Now, they are making UFOs more normal to us for some reason, right? Well, many reasons, actually. They can't deny that these UAPs are around the world. I mean, these crafts are seen in our skies weekly, sometimes daily, and that's only the sightings that are reported. So NASA's going to come through with their shady asses. Yeah, I don't trust NASA either. And aliens, I am ready for you. I am so ready. Please take me. I'm so done with this earth. I am so done. Oh, and before we get creepy, I have some Netflix recommendations for y'all. It's the cold season, you know, where we turn into hermits and get fatter to keep warm. So we need some series and movies to watch, right? So if you ever need something... Just message me on Instagram, because I'll probably see it there first. And I got you. I got you. I got a, I got a whole list started in my phone notes of shows, documentaries, movies that I want to watch this winter. 
and I've already started on some. So maybe I'll give you like a few each episode. So of course, I watched the new Netflix documentary on Vanessa Guillen. I hope by now you know her story. It was all over the news and social media. Her family spoke up and brought attention to this awful, awful tragedy. The asshole who brutally murdered her was actually from my hometown. Not proud of that. Bringing so much shame to my childhood home as if enough is not already brought to it. I didn't know of him or his family that I know of, but um, anyway. But yeah, I highly recommend watching this documentary was done the way a true crime documentary should be. All the attention was on Vanessa and her family. And other than mentioning the killer's name maybe two times and his accomplice once or twice, that was it. And I appreciate that. So add this documentary to your list. I shed a couple tears for sure. Vanessa's story hurt me and I definitely kept up with it on social media when it was happening. And I remember when I read what happened to her, I was just in complete and utter shock. Like how could that happen on a government base facility with cameras everywhere. There should have been cameras everywhere. The second show I want to recommend to you guys is called Ancient Apocalypse. So the way I describe the show to someone is ancient aliens, but with the facts and evidence to prove what they're talking about. But I don't want to give too much away, but I am telling you every episode, I was completely blown away. I learned so much, more than I learned in all my years of school history, I was in overdrive. <laughs> I mean, mouth hanging open, jumping up out of my chair. I think after each episode, I even had to like recuperate and come back down. <laughs> I'm serious. Amazingly put together. It questions everything we've ever been taught and more. So add that to your queue or your list. I absolutely love shows that teach me shit. For real. I love learning. So yeah, just to... Uh, two Netflix recommendations for y'all. Alright, mi gente, it's time to get creepy. So today I bring you three stories of mujeres cabronas and not in a cool kind of way. Ladies of pure evil, murderous women of the past. Now, if you guys haven't noticed, I love the number three. I always do things in sets of three. It's my magic number. So I wanted to talk about women who kill because there's always that stigma that men are the murderous, violent killers. And that's simply not true. Now women I feel are just as dangerous and quite possibly even more so because they're some sneaky ass bitches. Therefore, most probably get away with it or go for longer periods of time without being caught if they're even caught. So up first, we have Amelia Dyer, known as the Baby Strangler. Yeah, one thing I noticed about all these women killers is they have, I don't want to say cool because I never want to glorify killers, but the names that they were given is like people were scared of them. <laughs> so this one's the Baby Strangler. And before I continue, I just want to say, I'm sorry if the sound is all messed up. I'm kind of trapped at my brother's house this weekend, even though it's my vacation. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm kind of stuck here and I'm in a closet right now. I'm in his closet. Ricky, if you're listening, I'm in your closet. <laughs> 
And I thought the sound would sound a lot better in here, but I feel like it sounds worse. But this is like the only room in the entire house that I could get decent sound. So please forgive me, y'all. All right, so Amelia Dyer, the baby strangler. Now, Amelia's awful fiasco led to one of the biggest trials of the 19th century. It also brought attention to the act of baby farming. What? Yeah, what's baby farming? So I'll explain in a little bit what that term means. But first, some background about this mendiga. Now, Amelia was born in 1837 in a small village in Bristol, Dyer. She was the daughter of a shoemaker and, of course, had a pretty rough upbringing. Now, while her dad was out crafting shoes and supporting the family, young Amelia would stay home and care for her mentally ill mother. Now, eventually, Amelia grew up and chose the thing that she was really good at, which was caring for others like she did her mother. And so she became a nurse. However, somewhere along the way, she went from caring nurse to one of the worst people in humanity. So let's talk about what baby farming is. It was a common practice in Victorian England. So, okay, say a single woman gets pregnant. Maybe she's a lady of the night, but they would give birth and then they would take that baby to a baby farmer. So that was someone who would take care of the child, giving it not a great life, just a decent life. An article I read actually said that and I lost it. I'm like, wow, okay. At least you're being honest, right? We can't give them a great life, but a life nonetheless. So, Amelia lost her husband and was pretty much left to raise her daughter on her own. This is when she learned about the baby farming business. Yes, business. In 1869, she put her first ad in the newspaper. It read, Married couple with no family would adopt healthy child, nice country home, terms... 10 euro. So yes, this is the reason Amelia started doing this, the money. Now, depending on the family or situation, she would charge anywhere from 10 to 80 euro, which is equivalent to about, uh, I don't know, a thousand to 8,000 euro today. And <laughs> in US dollars, that's a little over a thousand to 8,000 dollars. So when Amelia would get a baby, she wasted absolutely no time getting rid of them. So she would starve them. Oh, wait, I should probably trigger warn, right? I haven't done this in a long time. <laughs> I know I always give my trigger warning at the beginning of the episode, but these cases have some really disturbing details. So major trigger warning here. So what she would do is she would starve the babies or she would drug them using an opiate lace cordial that she called mother's friend, not creepy at all, and her favorite method was strangulation. Now even worse to know is that many other baby farmers, air quotes, lost many of the babies to mysterious circumstances. And of course people back then were idiots and didn't care to question anything. So yeah, they would get babies and babies would go die which, you know, back then, babies did die a lot because people weren't the smartest. I mean, we, we're still not smart, you know. But it happened too often that it's like, eh, something's going on here. So yeah, babies dying. However, none of these baby farmers were as awful as Amelia Dyer. So she ran her business for 30 years. Yes, 
30. Now, like I was saying, you have to understand that infant mortality rates were super high around this time period. So it's pretty common to hear that a baby did not live more than a few months. So she's telling people all these babies are dying and they're kind of just like, oh, such a shame, darling, but you are an angel for trying. And this was her life for 30 years. Now, according to the Thames Valley Police Museum, the babies she received would die within hours or a few days. So how was she finally caught? Well, in 1879, she was almost caught when a doctor became super suspicious after numerous infant deaths happened under her care. She was even tried and sentenced to six months of intense labor. So after that, she changed her game a little bit. She relocated to Reading, I think it's Reading, in 1895, and she bypassed involving any type of doctor when the babies died. So instead, she would dispose of the bodies herself, mostly by throwing them into the River Thames. On March 30th, 1896, someone found a parcel tied to a brick in the river. Inside the parcel, swaddled in linen paper, and rope was the decomposing body of a baby girl known as Helena Fry. Her neck was wrapped in a white tape. However, on the parcel, it had a stamp dated from October 1895 marked Bristol Temple Meads. But even more evidence was a smudged name of a Mrs. Thomas of 26 Higgets Road, Caversham. This was Amelia's married name, Mensa, and former address, idiot. So the investigator did some investigating, and after a trip back to the old address, he found out that the woman who lived there prior had moved to Kensington Road in Reading. So he goes to pay her a little visit, and as soon as he walks in, he notices piles of baby clothes and newspaper clippings with ads on them from across the country. He also found a roll of, guess what, white tape, identical to the tape found on Helena Fry. Now, Amelia Dyer was arrested after this and charged in the murder of Helena Fry. Six more babies were found with the same white tape around their necks, and one parcel found even had the body of a 12-month-old girl. What kind of human? I just want to know. Ugh. Now, Dyer's trial was held on May 22nd, 1896, where this bitch showed up and pled insanity. Now, prosecutors fired back like, hell to the no. She knows exactly what she did. No one knows exactly how many babies' lives were taken, but one eyewitness claims that he would see up to six babies a day taken into the Dyer residence. But authorities believe that number to be well over 100 babies. Now, nine months into her first sentence, police found more evidence that she cared for at least 15 babies at one particular time. Now, this case not only shed light on the awfulness of baby farming, yeah, I don't know who came up with that idea, but also it showed how easy it was for babies to just be given up. The Amelia Dyer case helped the law pursue stronger action against baby farming, and Amelia Dyer was sentenced to death on June 10, 1896, after she gave a complete and full confession. May she rot in the underworld. Next up, I bring you the crimes of the awful black widow of the Midwest, Belle 
goodness. She was a female serial killer between 1884 and 1908. This story's wild. Y'all want to hold on to your belt buckles. Here we go. Now, Belle was a Norwegian immigrant believed to have killed 40 people in Chicago and Laporte, Indiana. <gasps> I know, so close to home. Now, Belle was born in Norway in 1859. She was the youngest of eight, raised on a farm. Her father was a stonemason, and she grew up tough and a beast on top of that. She was 5'9 and well over 200 pounds. Get it, girl? Damn. She was a ruthless woman, tough for sure. Now, it is believed that her life of crime started early in her life. One story states that when Gunnis was 18 years old, she became pregnant, which in the late 1800s, how scandalous for her, right? I mean, unless you're the Virgin Mary, all the comadres are going to talk shit about you. So she's pregnant, but there was a dance happening, and pregnant or not, Belle was going. She was not going to miss this dance. However, chisme on the street, and I say chisme because there's no actual evidence that this happened, but old girl claims that while at the dance, this guy, who was really wealthy, attacked her and kicked her repeatedly in her abdomen. Dude, I swear I've heard this story a few times in my life about girls being beaten up and miscarrying. But anyway, so of course, I think she lost the baby. But because the man was wealthy, he was never charged. Damn, 1880s and shit still the same today. So sad. So a short time after this incident, the man who beat Belle up mysteriously passed away. Mm-hmm. Some said he had stomach cancer. Some say he was poisoned. I don't know. You decide that one. <laughs> so after this, Gunness went off and she found work as a servant on a wealthy farm. But by 1881, as her sister did before her, Belle decided to leave her home country and come to America, eventually making her way to Chicago, Illinois. She found work as a servant here too. By 1884, Belle met and married Mads Albert Sorenson. They spent a few years in Chicago and even attempted to open a candy store, but after it being a failure, the store mysteriously burned down. Hmm, are you seeing a pattern here? Of course, the couple banked on the insurance money, so they buy this nice house. They start popping out babies. I think they had four babies. They had Caroline, Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. Now, unfortunately, Caroline and Axel both died, died in similar ways too. Both became very sick, feverish, had diarrhea, stomach cramps, which I'm just going to point out here are all symptoms of being poisoned, but just saying. I mean, I'm not saying anything, but like, come on. Now, in Belle Gunness fashion, she cashes in on the insurance policies for both children and chisme on the road around town was that they adopted a 10-year-old girl known as Morgan Couch, but later she was known as Jenny Olsen. Okay, a lot happens in the next part of Belle's life, so let's fly right through it, because I'm telling you, this woman was busy. So July 30th, 1900, Belle's husband drops dead on, get this, the day his two life insurance policies overlapped. Not suspicious at all, right? One doctor said that he died by poisoning, but then the family doctor later stated 
no, 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 no. He had an enlarged heart, so he must have been, it must have been heart failure. I wonder how much she paid the doctor to say that. Because that was their story and they stuck to it. Now, the husband's family grew really suspicious at this point, but they never filed any charges. Belle once again claims the insurance money for her husband and buys a farm out in Laporte, Indiana. Soon as they move in, a boat that she had recently purchased and a carriage both mysteriously burn down. And you know she had insurance on that ship. By April 1st, 1902, she remarries a man named Peter Gunness, who was also a widower and from Norway too. Literally one week after they tie the knot, Peter's infant daughter dies of unknown causes while home alone with Belle. Of course. Then a few months later in December, Peter had a tragic mishap when a sausage... I'm trying not to laugh. Peter had a tragic mishap when a sausage grinding machine fell off of a shelf in the kitchen and killed him. Man, death by sausage grinder. What a way to go. However, though, when the coroner saw the body, he easily could tell that this was not an accident, but a murder. But you see, Miss, Mrs., Miss, I don't know what the hell she is, Miss Bell Gunner, she had a way with words, and after being questioned, was let go free. Now, Cheeseman began spreading after Peter's death. There was absolutely no way that this man could have died the way Belle claimed. During all of this, Belle was pregnant and gives birth to her son, Philip, in 1906. And around this time, her adoptive daughter just disappears. But Belle says she went away to school in California. Later, as you'll hear, the adoptive daughter's body is found on the Gunness property. So Belle is now a lonely widow with a sad life story Everyone around her is just dropping like flies. So she's like, I need me a man. So she puts an ad in the paper. And a few men actually respond to it. I'm assuming this is pretty common around this time. <laughs> Maybe I should try this. Anyway, Belle was seen in manly attire most of the time. She worked on a hog farm and she always had overalls on and looked pretty manly. But on Sundays, ooh, she would get dolled up, do her makeup, her hair, and she would hit the local town with a handsome man. Now, one of these men came all the way from Minnesota. Belle introduced him as her cousin, and after only a week, the man vanishes. But he did leave Belle $1,000 to pay off her mortgage. Another man came and claimed that he was there to help Belle with finances. But on his first night there, he wakes up to Belle standing over him holding a candle with what he says was the most sinister face. So of course, he jumps out of bed, grabs his clothes, and just runs off and runs right to the train station and back home. Later, this man speaks out and says that had he not woken up, he knows for sure that Belle would have murdered him that night. So Mormon just keeps showing up. But oddly enough, no one ever saw them leave. And these men were just throwing money at Bell Gunness. I really need to try this article in the newspaper thing. <laughs> now, y'all ready for some good cheese, Okay. Bell had a farm handler named Ray, and he was in love 
with Belle. Ooh, I should nickname her Belle the Beast. She is the beast. Anyway, so he, Ray, he would do anything she asked of him. Well, he started getting a little jealous when all of these men were coming to visit. So much so that he made a scene in front of one of them. And Belle was like, get out of here. You're fired. But La Cabrona quickly goes to the Laporte courthouse, stating that her former employee was crazy. Mentally insane. I wonder why she would say this. So police question him. He's alright. Nothing crazy here. So they let him go. But then Ray goes to try and talk to Belle. And she has him arrested for trespassing. But Ray is so in love. And he keeps trying. He, he keeps showing up at the farm. Wanting to talk to her. Let me explain baby. Let me explain. But she's like get the hell out of here right? Now eventually he tells a neighbor that he and Belle, air quotes, took care of one of the men that had recently come down to visit. So Belle then goes to a lawyer and says that she fears for her life and her property because Ray has pretty much been threatening to burn it down. So she wanted a will made in case that it happened. Now in February of 1908, another farm handler that Belle hired after she fired Ray woke up one night to the smell of smoke. So he screams for Belle and the kids, but hears absolutely nothing. So he jumps out the second story window and he notices that the whole house is ablaze. Four bodies, including the decapitated corpse of a woman, were found inside. Of course, they blame Ray, but he claimed his innocence. However, a young boy says that he saw Ray running from the Gunnis residence. So of course, police book him and charge him. However, the corpse of the woman only measured 5'3 and weighed about 125 to 130 pounds. Way smaller than Belle the Beast. There was no way. There was absolutely no way it was her. Now at this time, one of the men that had responded to Belle's ad had a brother show up looking for him. So he tells police that his brother responded to an ad in the paper and came all the way down here with his life savings and then vanished. He has yet to hear from his brother. So police find the fire suspicious and they start digging around the property, mostly looking for the missing head so they can identify the woman. But instead, what they find is some weird shit. So they find a bunch of men's watches, assorted human bones, a lot of teeth, and eventually they find four whole bodies. Now these bodies were skillfully sliced and wrapped in cloth. One of those bodies was the body of the missing man whose brother was there looking for him. Now they searched the entire property for days and they ended up finding bodies of two small children and one body after another. So this was the top news in the town and with this news families from the Midwest came down looking for missing family members who they knew had responded to the ad in the paper. However, there were so many remains found and mixed in together that most were never identified. Now, the actual number of victims is unknown. However, it's estimated at least 40, and only 14 of those victims were ever identified. Now, Ray was charged for murder and arson and sentenced to 21 years, but later died in custody. I think I read that he died of tuberculosis. But before he died on his deathbed, he confessed everything. He told of the awful crimes that Belle Gunness committed, and he claimed his innocence, but 
he did confess that he helped rid of the bodies. He even explained in detail what would happen. So Bell would invite these men in, feed them, make them feel at home. Then she'd drug their coffee. And once they started to get woozy, boom, she'd hit them in the head with a meat cleaver and then carry them down to the cellar where she'd either dissect the body, slice them up and throw them into the hog pens, or sometimes she'd grind them or chop them and just feed it to the hogs. And what about the headless woman? Now, according to Ray, Belle hired a woman from Chicago to come and work at her home, and she did the same thing to her, pretty much. She drugged her, she beat her, and then beheaded her. The reason she beheaded her was so that it'd be harder to identify the woman's body. So what she did was she tied weights to the head and threw it in the swamp. She put her clothing on the woman, removed all the teeth from the head, and boom, she set the house on fire. Now, Ray was supposed to wait on the road for Belle the night of the fire. Maybe they were going to run away together i don't know but he saw the bitch run off into the woods without him (laughs) poor ray (laughs) i'm telling you love makes us do some crazy shit so ray claims that bell was insanely wealthy and had to have an estimate of about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which today is equivalent to over six million dollars this bitch was set for life now when police looked into her bank accounts of course all except one were empty. Bell Gunness was now a criminal on the run. But guess what, mi gente? They never found her. She was cited a few times. Once, they thought they found her in California under the name Esther Carlson. Now, Carlson was charged with poisoning a man in February of 1931. Two people claimed the resemblance was undeniable, which honestly... I believe <laughs> because of her build, you know, she's not she's, she's not hard to miss. But it was never proven because Esther Carlson died just two months later in custody. Something she really did die in the house fire and the headless corpse was buried next to her first husband, Mads Sorensen, at Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. Can you imagine if that's not her? <laughs> they just buried a stranger next to this man. So fucking crazy. <laughs> But yeah, that's the story of Belle Gunness. She was a crazy ass bitch. That's crazy. All right. For my third story, I did a TikTok about this um, crazy story, but I have to get a little more into detail. This is one of my favorites. This is the chilling tale of Leonarda Ciunciuli. So unlike our other murderous women, Leonarda didn't kill that many people. But she still killed. Now, her story is known because of the way she did her crimes. So at the turn of the 20th century, Leonarda was married and had already been pregnant 17 times. I can't imagine. She was getting it in for sure. However, of the 17 pregnancies, three were lost before birth and 10 died in their early years. That is a lot of loss. I can't imagine her mental state. So anyway, the few children that did survive though, she was like super protective of them. Now her oldest son, Giuseppe Bansardi, who some claim was her favorite child, decided to enlist in the Esercito Italiano the Italian army. Around this time, World War II was going on and he just wanted to fight for his country, you know? But him enlisting and her crazy belief in superstitions is where Leonarda's story 
begins. So let's go back a little bit here and find out maybe why Leonardo Cianciulli's life ended up the way it did. So growing up, she lived in the town of Montella, and she had a pretty rough life. So rough that in her teens, she actually attempted suicide twice. She ended up married to a registry clerk, Rafael Pansardi, in 1917, and her mother, she hated this. Ooh, she hated this. So much so that Leonardo believed that her mother cursed her. I think she did too. <laughs> now in 1927, Chunchuli was convicted of fraud. And she had to do a few years in the pen. But when she left the pen, her family moved to Lacedonia. And in 1930, the Irpinia earthquake struck. Now this was one of the worst quakes in Italian history and she, like many, lost their homes in this earthquake. So you see why she thinks she's cursed and why I believe she's cursed. <laughs> now for a while I thought my life was cursed too but nah, that was just a bad marriage and a shitty human. Anyway so Leonarda is like damn everything sucks. We've all been there before. So she does what anyone would do right? She goes to see a fortune teller and this lady tells her, quote, In your right hand I see prison and in your left hand I see a criminal asylum, end quote. So it wasn't a good reading. Imagine, imagine getting a reading like that. That's crazy. So, of course, Leonardo gets super paranoid and she's like, what the hell? Like, what am I going to do? How can she protect her son, who's away at war, but also her life? Well, there's no other way than with human sacrifice, of course. Yeah, nobody knows why this idea popped into Leonardo's head, but it did. Now, in 1939, her first victim was Faustina Setti, and she invited her over to talk about these plans to find Seti a husband. So Chiunchuli convinces this woman to write her family these letters explaining that she was going to take a trip to find her a nice man. Now after Seti wrote the letters, she drugged her and murdered her with an axe. But that's not it. Oh no no no. You see Chiunchuli then cut up the body, threw it into a giant pot... And then she added seven kilos of caustic soda, which she frequently used to make soap. So then she mushed it all together, poured it into these buckets, and emptied them into a large septic tank. But that's still not it. With the large amount of blood that she collected when cutting up the body, she waited until it started to solidify. She dried it in the oven, and then she ground it and mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk, and eggs too. Oh, and some butter. And she put all of that together to make nice, crunchy mini cakes. Now she'd share these little cakes with friends and neighbors, and she even ate some herself. When I cook or bake, I usually won't eat it. So the fact that she knows what's in the cake and she's still eating it, that just shows how mental this woman is. Now, it was stated that Leonardo took Seti's life savings to find her a man before killing her. It wasn't a lot either, though. It was like a couple hundred in today money. I think it was like 300 and something dollars. Not worth a life. Now the next year, now the next year in September of 1940, Chunchuli invited Francesca Soevi. Soevi? Soevi. Francesca Suavi over with the promise of getting her a job abroad. 
Now, she made her write letters to her family, pretty much explaining to them her plan, and then she was murdered in the same manner Seti was. Her money was also taken. A few weeks after this, her third and final victim, thank God, was Virginia Cassiopo. Now, Leonardo told her that she could get her a job in Florence, Italy. She murdered her in the same way, drugs, axe, dismemberment, but... This time, Chunchuli used the flesh of the body to make soap. Now, Leonardo in one of her confessions said that Virginia's body was fatty, so when it was boiling in the pot, she noticed a really creamy fat. Anyway, and so she decided that she was going to take that melted fat, add a little bit of cologne to it, and she made creamy soap. She passed the soap to neighbors and acquaintances, and she even went on to say that the cakes she made with this victim were her best yet. Saying, quote, that woman was really sweet, end quote. She's talking about the taste, y'all, not her personality. Now, the reason this was her last victim was because Virginia had a concerned sister-in-law who grew really suspicious. She knew that Virginia would never just take off like that without saying goodbye, and she physically saw her walk into Leonarda's home that night. So she went to police, and shockingly, the Italian polizia took fast action to go investigate. Wow, that's something we never see here in America. Now, Leonarda was like, I didn't do anything, y'all crazy. But then the police wanted to blame her son, Giuseppe, and Leonardo was like, hell to the no, leave my baby boy alone. I did it. I did everything. I'll even tell you exactly what I did. So she was quickly put on trial and it lasted just a few days. She was found guilty and sentenced to 33 years, 30 in prison, and three in a criminal asylum. Fortune come through though. Now remember, that's exactly what the fortune teller predicted. On October 15th, 1970, Leonardo Chunchuli died of cerebral apop apoplexy. I hope I said that right. Apoplexy, which is pretty much just a hemorrhage. She was 79 years old, and some of the evidence from her home can still be found today at the Criminology Museum in Rome. Wow. Wild and crazy crimes done by even crazier women. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed those morbid and chilling stories. Before we sign off today, I want to read a listener story from longtime listener Mari. Now, this story has been sitting in my email because I wanted to read it with you guys. So here we go. So it says, hi, Lore. So I know it's been a while since I sent my last email with the last story and teased about my experiences. Now, Mari, before I go on, Mari was the one who sent in the story about the girl getting pulled into the hole in the wall. Yeah, that was a scary one. So she says, anyway, I finally sat down and started typing out my experiences. I hope you like it. Yes, I'm so excited to read this. When I was around 12 years old, I had several experiences in my house. It was a couple of years after we moved to the suburb of Chicago, which were pleasant enough, if almost too peaceful. I woke up in the middle of the night to what sounded like footsteps in the hallway outside of my bedroom. The house was old and you could hear the creaks of the wooden floorboard anytime someone walked past my bedroom. At first I thought maybe it was someone getting up to go to the bathroom, which was right across from my bedroom. But the creaking and the footsteps kept going back and forth past my bedroom. For a while, that's all it was. Creepy, but that's it. 
Then one night, after some time of the footsteps walking back and forth, a man walked in. To this day, I don't know what his face looked like. It was blurry and, I'll be honest, I was too scared to look. All I could tell was that he was a tall man perhaps six feet tall and wore dark pants and a white shirt. That's really all I saw because I immediately hid under my blankets. Several nights that would happen. The footsteps followed by him coming into my room and me hiding under the blanket. Eventually I told my mom about it and she believed me even if I felt like I was going crazy because no one else in the house experienced anything like it. Especially the fact that I shared a room with my sister and she never heard or saw anything. So my mom called the previous owner who had lived there her whole life since the house was built to ask if anything had happened in the house. She immediately got defensive and said nothing had happened. We couldn't understand why it started happening after already being there for a while and we even had the house blessed when we first moved in. Granted, it didn't seem malicious, but I just kind of dealt with it. I had no choice really. Sometime later, my parents wanted to have a night out so they got a babysitter, who happened to be an older cousin of mine. She did stay the night, sleeping in the front room on the couch. The next morning, she told my parents how she heard someone walking in the hallway, but no one was there. While it did make me feel slightly better, it still could have just been attributed to an old house and I was still imagining the man. A couple of months later, my uncle and his wife were visiting and were staying with us. After one night, his wife had asked my mom if my dad went into my room to check on us, but my mom told her no. So she explained how she saw a guy walking into my room in the middle of the night. Finally, I started feeling a little less crazy. Then another couple months later, some more family spent the night. The arrangements were changed up so that I slept out in the front room and my cousin and brother stayed in my room. My brother slept in my sister's bed and my cousin slept in my bed. The next day we learned that my cousin had seen the man walk into my room. He described him exactly as I saw him, but he said that the man's face was bleeding and he was speaking in a language that he couldn't understand. He said he had thrown pillows at my brother to try and wake him, but he couldn't wake him. So he too did what I did and hid under the blankets and waited for the morning to come. And at that point I knew for sure that what I had been hearing and seeing wasn't just an overactive imagination. I felt like crying with relief that I wasn't going crazy. Before I get into the biggest experience that happened to me, I just wanted to share a couple of things outside of those nightly occurrences. I was a little older in high school at this point when I was home alone. I was in the basement, a very creepy basement might I add. I was walking back upstairs when I stopped at the midway point where there is a landing and the stairs turned to the left to go the rest of the way. I don't know why I did, I just felt like I needed to. And then I heard footsteps coming up behind me quickly. I did not bother to look behind me, I just ran the rest of the way up into my room and slammed the door shut. Another time I was home alone, but older again, around 18 or 19 years old, I was in my room getting changed. By force of habit, I had the door closed for privacy. The door had been closed for some time when suddenly the doorknob turned ever so slightly. I could hear the latch as the door slowly creaked open. Fortunately, I did not see anyone there, so I slammed the door shut and just yelled at it saying, stop being a pervert, let me change in private. And that was it. So now the biggest thing that has happened to me. Back to being a 12 year old girl. It was the middle of the night. I was hearing the footsteps again and was about to hide under the blankets. But before I did, they stopped. I turned to look over at my sister's bed, who was across from mine. But instead of seeing her, I saw the man sitting on the edge of her bed. 
He was hunched over with his elbows on his knees and his face in his hands. I froze, just staring at him, looking more solid than real than ever. Then he started raising his head as if he were going to lift his face to look at me. That's when I quickly dove under the covers, just waiting for him to go away. Then I felt something sit on the edge of my bed near my head. I was so scared I didn't know what to do. And then right near my ear I heard a voice whisper my name. But the strange part was it sounded like an older woman. And when I heard that voice I got a flash of a woman's face in my mind. I threw the covers and ran to my parents' room waking up my mom. I can't tell you if the man was still in my room, because to this day, I cannot remember the short trip from my room to my mom's bedside. I just remember being on her side of the bed, crying and shaking. She let me climb into bed with her, putting me in between her and my dad. I got one more flash of that woman's face and started crying and shaking more. But somehow, I managed to fall asleep. And that was the last of my real encounters with the man and whoever that woman was. Many years later, we were talking about that night, and she admitted something to me. She said that after I came to her room, she was holding me on the inside of the bed. On the other side, she started hearing a raspy woman's voice, whispering things she couldn't understand. And when the woman started speaking, that's when I started shaking more. She just kept praying to God to watch over us and keep us safe. We never really figured out where the man came from, but we had our theories. My mom loves going to antique shops, and through this period of us living here, got a few items. Paintings, cabinets, and other things. We believe that he was attached to one of the things we brought into the house. Fortunately, it didn't seem to follow me or my family, but possibly because we never took any of those antiques in our next moves. I always yell at my father. <laughs> He loves thrifting and I'm talking like furniture like he'll bring back mirrors. I do not trust mirrors. If I buy a mirror it has to be brand new. Draw I mean I tell him all the time please don't buy stuff. Oh I'm so sorry you experienced that. I'm glad they never hurt you because it did kind of sound like a malicious spirit and the woman why is she appearing to you? <laughs> Thank you, Mari, for sharing that story. Seriously, thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that listener's story. I sure did. And Mari, have you ever thought about writing? <laughs> so good. Remember, if you have a story or experience, I don't care what it is, or maybe you just want to send me a message, make sure to email me at creepychisme for you. That's the number 4-Y-O-U at gmail.com. And I'll get to you as soon as I can. <laughs> you can also message me on Instagram. I check that daily. Uh, Facebook groups, which I haven't been on too much. And TikTok. You can also message me on TikTok. And if you haven't, go follow my TikTok, where I post short stories all the time. Enjoy your families this holiday season. Let whoever you are thankful for know you are thankful for them. It's amazing what kind words can do for us. Hope you guys have a great week. I will talk to you soon. Gracias por escuchar y nos vemos pronto. Creepy Chisme is created for entertainment purposes only. Thanks for listening and don't forget, stay creepy and spread the chisme. Adios mi gente.